Amen. Uh, if you would, grab your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. I did forget to mention, pray for Brother Daniel. Uh, he's heading back this afternoon to head down to college and uh, down in, I guess, southwestern, I guess I would call it, New York. Uh, and so be in prayer for him. Uh, as he heads out last semester, and then pray he's supposed to move back here. Make sure, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but pray for pray for brother Daniel with that as he finishes up. Uh, I also did not mention. Uh, I am I've met with someone already about uh, joining the church and would like to join. So, uh, in a few weeks here, sometime. Uh, probably mid-February, uh, we're going to have a meeting for that. And if you'd like to join the church, and uh, uh, what we need to do, number one, is get you a constitution of the church so you can have it and know what we believe and why we believe and all those things. And then uh, secondly, you have to have a meeting with me so that we can go over that, make sure I can answer any questions, you can understand how the church operates in those things before we vote. So uh, if you are interested in that, please talk to me after the service or let Pastor Legault know and we'll get you a constitution and, and start the ball rolling there. So, uh, But uh, with that idea, a couple Wednesdays ago, I preached on not swerving and getting away from doctrine and losing uh, the doctrine that is so, so necessary for a Christian. The byproduct ultimately of good doctrine is that you'll have a good conscience, that you'll have a good heart, and that you'll have a good relationship with your Savior. Uh, that's, that's what happens. And when you start moving away from those things, when you start moving away from sound doctrine, you start to lose what being a Christian is all about. And the cornerstone of that is, is found here in 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, and the truth of the matter is that uh, I got going through the Constitution with someone and we hit our statement of faith. In order to be a member of the church, you have to ascribe to one, the church covenant, and two, the statement of faith, uh, what we believe. We have 10 things in our constitution that lay the foundation for what we believe and ultimately we build upon that. But uh, those main tenets, those 10 things that we have in there, uh, I'm going to preach on over the next few weeks. And the first, of course, is the cornerstone of everything that we believe. And that's the Bible. And so Second uh, Peter chapter 1 and verse uh, number 16 Peter says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory, when there came such a voice to Him from, from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with Him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Uh, ultimately, uh, you find out that uh, one of two things is true. Either we have a whole bunch of fables that we follow, and they were really well written and crafted, or... God gave it to us. Uh, that, that's all you get. You get either the Bible came from God or some men over literally centuries figured out how to manipulate 
and come together and make the book that you hold as a Bible. Uh, that's really all there is to it. Uh, you say, well, that, that seems really simple. That is really simple, that, but that's the truth. The truth doesn't have to be complicated to be true. Uh, salvation is simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's simple. Uh, the truth of the Bible is also very simple. Either God gave it or He didn't. Salvation is either Jesus Christ is the Savior or He isn't. It's not really all that difficult. So either the Bible is true and it's right and it's perfect or you have nothing to worry about. But if it's true and if it's perfect and if it's exactly what it says and claims to be, then everybody's in a whole lot of trouble if they don't want to believe it. That's the difference. Uh, if Jesus isn't the Savior, you have nothing to worry about. But if He is, you've got everything to worry about. See, there, that's, that's the crux right there. That's the issue. And the issue is, well, well what is it? You know, what does it matter? You know, uh, this Bible, uh, you know, who cares? Uh, but ultimately, the Scriptures become the cornerstone of everything. Uh, we know that it is the, uh, we call it the sole authority of all matters of faith and practice. Uh, you find that really in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 3. It starts off exactly there. According as His divine power. Who? God. The Lord Jesus Christ there. Uh, according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that calleth, hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust." say, well, how do I, how, what was I given? You were given all things that pertain unto life, how to live, and godliness, how to worship. You say, where did I get that? You got that out of the book that gives you exceeding great and precious promises. That's the Bible. Uh, it's not very hard to figure out. So God gave us a list of what we need, all the things that we need to know how to get to God and worship God and how to live our life day in and day out, the practicality of the Bible. All of those things are there. And so this morning, we're going to look at the Scriptures, and we're going to look at three things about it. We're going to look at the canon of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, and the preservation of the Scriptures. And so let's go to Lord in prayer this morning, uh, and I'm going, to, I'm going to do my best. This is a big topic, but I'm going to try not to go real long, all right? So let's have a word of prayer, and we'll, we'll see. Lord, I thank you for the morning, and we thank you for, Father, just being merciful and gracious and slow to anger and of great kindness to us. I thank you, Lord, that you save us for all of eternity. But Father, not only that, we would have no idea and no surety and no sure foundation without a more sure word of prophecy, whereby we do well that we take heed. Father, I pray you would give me wisdom as I speak about it, as I proclaim it, as I try to, Lord, frame the right words this morning. I pray that Jesus Christ would be preeminent and that everything that is said and done would bring praise and honor and glory to you. Lord, we pray you would just bless our morning today. Father, if someone here is without Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. I pray they'd call upon the only means of salvation, Jesus Christ the righteous. Lord, we love you and we pray you'd come back soon in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. First of all, let's, let's go ahead and look over at Psalm 119. Uh, Psalm 119. Now, I know normally especially on a Sunday morning, Psalm 119. Uh, I don't turn to about, you know, 20 or 30 places, but we may this morning, okay? I'm doing a little more teaching with a little more preaching. It's kind of mixed in a little bit this morning. Uh, Psalm 119, 
verse number 89. Now, you can go through Psalm 119 and you get multiple, every verse references to the Word of God in some light. Uh, so you could, we could grab verse after verse from this chapter for this morning. Uh, I won't. I'm, I'm just going to grab a few here and there as we go uh, to different places. But uh, notice what he says here in Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Now we're talking about the canon of the scriptures uh, right here. And ultimately, the choice of what's supposed to be, what books are supposed to be in and what books aren't supposed to be in. Uh, that's the canon, right? It's the list of what's allowed and what's not allowed. So uh, you used to have, you know, even the King James Bible, they, they separated the books of the Apocrypha. And they put them in the middle when they first produced it. Now the books were, were sprinkled in between all the other ones in, in other versions. And uh, they were put in there. You realize that the Apocrypha is not in your Bible now? It was eliminated from canon. Uh, it was disproved as part of what is supposed to be in the Scriptures. Uh, they put it in the middle, and they even said when they put it in the middle that these are not inspired and they are not part of the Scriptures. We in included them as writings just for you to have. That's all they were. It's history books. It's, it's books where you could go to and reference. You say, what's the problem with the Apocrypha? Well, the problem with the Apocrypha is it's not inspired. We'll get to inspiration here in a moment. But the problem is that it doesn't match up with Scripture. That's the problem. What we know to be true, there's errors in those things. As soon as there's errors, it can't be the Word of God. God has it settled. He had it settled in heaven before He ever had man pen it on earth. That's the, that's the connotation in verse number 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. So God had it all laid out already before mankind ever put their hands on it. Isn't that, isn't that what he said? You get over to... Oh, look back at 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. You and I got saved. When we got saved, we trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. We weren't redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from our vain conversation, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. We know salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, paying the debt of our sins at Calvary. When you get to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23, he tells us this, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. We got salvation because of this book. You have no surety and no, no security of salvation without a Bible. Because you have no idea what's true without it. And God had it all laid out. And you know what it is? It liveth and abideth forever. God had this set up forever. There are few eternal things that you and I get to deal with. You're holding one. It liveth and abideth forever. So those apocryphal books, God knew they weren't supposed to be in there. That's why you don't have them. You have all these questions. I've got a book in my office called The Lost Books of God and the Forgotten Books of Eden. If you would like to read some trash, it's on my shelf. Uh, feel free. You can borrow it. If you keep it, I won't even miss it. All right? Uh, you say, oh, but those books are supposed to be so amazing. They're awful. Uh, they do no justice to any of the scriptures. They don't lighten your eyes. They don't do any of that. Uh, 
They aren't inspired and they certainly have a ton of errors in them. You can, you can figure that out just reading them. It's not hard to find. Uh, you've got that big movement that came out that talks about, you know, the book of Enoch. Really? I don't even have to argue about the book of Enoch. That's so ridiculous. Uh, then you turn around and you've got the gospel according to Thomas. Isn't that a wonder? That's the one that I'd want to pick up and read. The guy who doubted everything and didn't know what was going on, that's the guy that we should probably hold on to. So why do they do that? They do that because they want to mess with the Scriptures. Anything that can cast any doubt or any insecurity or you to have to second guess or think that you don't have everything or you don't know everything or you're going to get this greater revelation in a book of Mormon or you're going to get all that stuff's garbage. And it's one right after the other. You say, what did God do? God designed it and set it up. You realize the Old Testament was kept, the oracles of God were given to the Jews of the Old Testament. They decided what was canon and what wasn't canon and they put it all together for you and you have the same books that they have. You hit the New Testament, you know what he had to do? He had to inspire some guys and tell them, hey, this is supposed to be in and this isn't supposed to be in. You realize the canon of scriptures that you have, you know what you're going to need? You're going to need faith that you got all of it. And it's not faith in man. We're going to get to that here shortly. It's not faith in man. The entirety of the idea of the scriptures and having a Bible in your hands is all about whether God can do what he says or he can't. That's the entire crux of everything right there. The, the whole point of everything is, can God do what He says He can do or no? And if He can't do what He says He can do, then you and I are going to be burning in a lake of fire for all of eternity just like everybody else. Say, so why? Because if His Word isn't true, then everything else isn't true that He said. You have no hope. You realize how hopeless it is if God didn't give you a Bible? You say, well, what do I got to trust? You got to trust that the 66 books that you are looking at in your Bible are exactly what God wants you to have. And if it's settled in heaven forever, then it's settled for you now. Here they are. Say, well, what if there's a contradiction? then you can trust that you're not looking at it right and God's right. You realize, God does certain things to make you think. I'm just going to give one example so that I'll, I'll move on, I promise. Uh, right? You get into Proverbs and you answer a fool according to his folly, lest to be wise in his own conceit. Next verse, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest I'll be like unto Well, do I answer him or don't I answer him? Well, situational you need to use a little wisdom and decide which one of those is right there comes a time when you have to stop answering a fool why because you're going to look just like him just be quiet already why that guy's running his mouth enough he already looks like an idiot you don't have to but there's other times where you answer him and you say no that's just wrong here's the answer lay it out find out if they'll Get some wisdom. But fools despise wisdom and instruction, so you've got to watch out for them. Look over at 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. See. 
Some people feel, feel that there's an arrogancy that goes along with the idea of knowing you have a Bible. That's what they think. They think it's an arrogancy. Well, you, you realize that that's what people think when you tell them that you know you're going to heaven? You know, certainty breeds not arrogancy, but confidence. I, I'm confident that I'm confident that I'm going to heaven for all of eternity. Why? Because God told me so. I did what he asked. I can have a confidence that God gave me a Bible because he said he would and that we would have a more sure word of prophecy and it'd be the scriptures and that they were given, notice in verse number 16, of course, here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. The inspiration of the scriptures now comes into play. Uh, he starts off the verse, it's, it's absolutely plain, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So that means if it's scripture, then it is inspired. All. I, I find it very interesting the times where we like the word all and where we skip it. We, we, we do that all the time. <laughs> uh, I don't really, I mean, I know all unrighteousness is sin, but <laughs> we, we don't like all all the time. But God uses it purposely when he uses it. And when he uses it, he means it. So all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Look back at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. You say, how does inspiration work? Well, we read it back there in Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, right? Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's inspiration. Inspiration is the Holy Ghost moving a man to be able to write and author what you and I have been given. So you get to Acts chapter 1. Notice what he says about it in verse number 16. Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled. Talking of Jesus Christ, death, burial, resurrection, right? Which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. Say, so David was inspired to say and write what he wrote about Judas all the way back there in the book of Psalms. That's, that's the connotation. That David was told to write what he wrote based upon what God, the Holy Spirit, told him to write. Look over at Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. Just a couple examples. Acts chapter 28, look at verse uh, 25. Acts 28, 25, And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed. After that Paul had spoken one word, what did he say? He said, Well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers, saying, Go unto this people and say, Hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and not perceive, and so on. 
Well, then Isaiah was talking by the Holy Ghost. So then he's inspired. But all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. He's giving you examples of what? Of the times that he used the Holy Ghost to move a man to say what he needed him to say and to do what he needed him to do. Inspiration, I, I would think that everybody would go, well, yeah, every, of course, the Bible is inspired. It's the inspired Word of God. And so their answer is, well, of course, it's inspired. But then you get this crowd and their answer is, well, the originals were inspired. Now, turn over to Jeremiah chapter 36. You get this, the idea, well, you know, it, when, when the guy first got told what he was supposed to say and he said it and it got written down, that is inspiration. And anything past that is, can't possibly be inspiration. Okay. So the first time you're told, that's what inspiration is. Okay. Jeremiah chapter 36, verse number 1. And it came to pass in the fourth year, fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that the, this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take thee a roll of a book, and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel, and against Judah, and against all the nations, from the day I spake unto thee, from the days of Josiah, even unto this day. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken unto him upon a roll of a book. Now you know what happens, right? You get down to verse number 28. Right? He, he goes ahead. You read the rest of the chapter between there and verse 28. And uh, they go in and they're supposed to hand it and it's supposed to be read before the king and the king reads it and he gets mad. Right? You read the chapter if you want to. Uh, the king gets mad. What does he do? Well, he, he gets through a couple of leaves, through a couple of pages of this roll that Jeremiah spoke and Baruch wrote. And he gets mad about it, so he cuts it with a penknife and he throws it in a fire. And then you get to verse number 28 here. And, well, verse 27, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after that the king had burned the roll and the words which Baruch wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, saying, Take thee again, another roll, and write it in all the former words, uh, in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, hath burned. Verse 32, Then took Jeremiah another roll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And there were added besides them, unto them Many like words. Now, surely we had to italicize that last part, right? Because that wasn't in the originals? No, no. That's written just the same as everything else. There was no scribal trying to make something look better. It was exactly what Jeremiah told Baruch to write. And his answer was, I added some words. So was the original inspired or was the original number two inspired? Or was it both? Okay, go over to Jeremiah chapter, uh, I don't know, 45. 
Let's go over to Jeremiah 45, a few chapters over. This gets a little bit more convoluted for you. Verse number one is going to sound awfully familiar. The word, of the, Lord, uh, the word that Jeremiah the prophet spake unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he had written these words in a book at the mouth of Jeremiah. Well, when did he do it? In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, unto thee, O Baruch, and so on down he goes. We say, when's that? that? That's exactly the same as the timing of chapter 36. And so you've got this other book that's showing up right here that he's going to talk about, which would be evidently the second original. And the job is to go ahead and read this book. Look over at chapter 51. Jeremiah chapter 51. Here's original number 2, verse 59. All the way down to the end of the chapter, verse 59. The word which Jeremiah the prophet commanded Sariah, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, something like that, uh, when he went uh, with Zedekiah the king of Judah into Babylon in the fourth year of his reign, and this Sariah was a quiet prince. So Jeremiah wrote in a book all the evil that should come upon Babylon, even all these words that are written against Babylon. And Jeremiah said on Sariah, When thou comest to Babylon, and shalt see and shalt read all these words, then shalt thou say, O Lord, thou hast spoken against this place to cut it off, that none shall remain in it, neither man nor beast, but that it shall be desolate forever." And it shall be, when thou hast made an end of reading this book, that thou shalt bind a stone to it and cast it into the midst of Euphrates. And thou shalt say, Thus shall Babylon sink and shall not rise from the evil that I will bring upon her, and they shall be weary. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. Say, so what happened to original number two? It ended up at the bottom of the Euphrates then what do you have? If original number one was inspired and got burned in a fire and original number two was inspired and got thrown in a river, what do you have? You've got a copy. But if your copy's not inspired, then you don't have anything. Because it wouldn't be Scripture. So what's it doing in here? You shouldn't have the book of Jeremiah if inspiration is only on the originals. See, but yeah, a translation is different though than the originals. A translation, you take the literal text and then you've got to make it into whatever language you're going to and uh, he obviously could have only inspired it in Hebrew and Greek. So the English one I'm looking at couldn't be inspired. Go back to Genesis 42. Let's 
Genesis chapter 42. Now, I'm going to take for granted that you know what's happening in the book of Genesis, okay? Uh, I'm going to hope that you know that Joseph was sold into slavery, went to Potiphar's house, right? Things went badly there. He ends in prison. He gets taken, finally taken out of prison and is set second only to Pharaoh in the kingdom. His brothers show up, right? Because there's a famine and he's providing and he's taking care of the land. His brothers show up and so he's got to talk to his brothers, Notice what he says here in Genesis chapter 42. Look at verse 23. Brothers are in front of him. Verse 23. And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter. What does he need an interpreter for? Isn't he talking in Hebrew? Well, no. He's second to Pharaoh. He's talking in Egyptian. So you've got the Egyptian talking. And you've got an interpreter talking in Hebrew. So which one are they writing? And by the way, you've got Moses writing this way later in Hebrew. So was Joseph inspired when he talked in Egyptian? Was the interpreter inspired when he talked in Hebrew? Or was Moses inspired when he wrote it in Hebrew? Well, that's, well, if it's just the guy that spoke in Egyptian, you don't have it. It wasn't written in, in Egyptian. Nobody took a record. God took a record. He told Moses what to write. And he wrote what Joseph said by the interpreter. And he wrote it down. You say, who's inspired? All of them. Because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. I don't know, that didn't really prove much. Okay, Acts 22. (laughs) You wouldn't think I'd leave you with one example in the Bible. Acts chapter 22. Now... Here's the, the Apostle Paul, right? Verse 21, uh, chapter 22, verse 1, all the way down to verse 21 is what he is saying. Acts is written in Greek, right? Luke's writing, writing it in Greek. Look at the last verse of chapter 21. 2140. And when he had given, them, given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with a hand onto the people. And when he, when he was, when he, uh, and when there, here we go, was made a great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue, saying, Who's inspired? Paul when he speaks or Luke when he writes? Paul's writing, Paul's, Paul's speaking in Hebrew. Luke's translating, writing it in, 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 uh, in Greek for him. Put it all down. Well, either one's inspired and one's not, or they both are. I don't know. Translation, I mean, that could be 
Okay, Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 26. Hold them both. Acts chapter 26 and Acts chapter 9. We've already established... We've already established, right? Luke's written the book of Acts. You can go back to chapter 1. You can get it. Here's Luke, and he's writing, and he's writing in Greek. And he says here in Acts chapter 9, you've got the account, right? Of Saul coming into Damascus. The letters and the persecution that's about to happen. In verse 5, or verse 4, they fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. It's all written in Greek. Go to Acts chapter 26. Verse number 14. Paul's given the account again before Agrippa this time. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speak unto me and sang in the Hebrew tongue. Oh, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, so is the voice of God speaking in the Hebrew inspired? Or is the guy writing it in Greek inspired? You can try and go, well, Joseph didn't have to be inspired and, and the interpreter didn't have to be inspired. As long as Moses was inspired, that's fine. And you could, you could go ahead and try and, and go, well, you know, Paul didn't necessarily have to be inspired with what he said as long as Luke was inspired to write it. But how do you argue with Jesus saying it in Hebrew and Luke writing it in Greek? And you can't tell me the words of Jesus aren't inspired. I'm pretty sure every time he speaks, he is moved by the Holy Ghost, all right? <laughs> They're pretty close. Um, Say, so what's the problem? This doesn't even cover all the things, and I could keep going. We could do this for a long time, because all you have to do is take every Old Testament quote that was quoted in the New Testament. You realize every time it's quoted from the Old Testament to the New Testament, they translated it. <laughs> You're dealing with a translation every single time. Was it inspired in the Old Testament and not inspired in the New? Well, you say, now you're just being mean. No, I'm, I'm trying to get you to see. It's, it's a foolish idea to go, well, the, only the originals could be inspired. And a translation could never be inspired. Because that, that doesn't equate. In the Scriptures, it doesn't equate. There's biblical truth all the way through that shows you you do not need to go ahead and try to think of this mystical unknown holding on to the originals in hopes that we would ever find them. They don't exist because you don't need them. The truth is you don't need any of those things because the scriptures are inspired no matter where they are if they're the scriptures. Because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And whether it's an original, a copy, or a translation, God can inspire any one of those. 
Whether it's the spoken word by Jeremiah or the pen that Baruch is putting to the page or the translator who goes ahead and follows along and goes ahead and writes the words that may be sounding like many like words like Jeremiah did when he rewrote choosing the right words so the understanding can be there. Look over at uh, Psalm chapter 12. Psalm chapter 12. So you, are, you seem pretty adamant about the Bible. Well, the Lord magnifies it above all His name. So I think He's pretty adamant about it. He's so adamant about it that He has let you know that it was going to be around for forever. That's, I mean, He's got pretty high regard for His own Word. In fact, He lets us know here in Psalm chapter 12 and verse number 6 that the words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Now usually there's no question about verse number 6. The Word of God is pure. It's clean. It's holy. Right? We, it's so holy we stamp it on the cover. <laughs> holy Bible. That's what we do. It's, it's pure. It's perfect. But the problem you run into is the question of, is a King James Bible perfect? Now, you can get a lot of people to go along with the idea that the Bible is perfect, but they're not talking about yours. <laughs> they're talking about the originals. They're going back to those old ones. And the question comes, well, of course, God can go ahead and inspire man to write it. And they won't argue with you about it. They'll say... Of course, everything, everything, God, all, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and that's the originals, and the originals are inspired, but you can't possibly have a perfect copy now. Then you've lost verse 7. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. By the way, unless you have a newer version. They changed them to us in many of them. But the antecedent to them are the words. You and I are not who he's preserving in the verse. He's preserved us. I am all in favor of eternal security. But this is not an eternal security verse. This is security of the scriptures. You realize it is not mankind's job to secure the Scriptures? Just like it's not my job to keep my salvation, it is not my job to keep the Scriptures and make sure they're pure. It's God's job. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The crux of the Bible is not just on one spot. It is not solely on the idea that it's inspired. It is the question of can God both inspire it and then preserve it? Because either you have it or you don't. The preservation of the Scriptures is what we stand upon. I stand upon the truth that God can preserve His words when He wants to. Now notice He's very particular because He didn't say the ideas. He said the words. Verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. Preservation is found in the words 
Not the ideas, concepts, themes, whatever, allegory, whatever weird other thing somebody wants to throw in. His statement about his own word is, I will preserve the words. That's why he says, every word of God is pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Every word. Well, that means every word matters. If it doesn't matter, then why do we bother? Well, look over at Matthew chapter 24. We talked about the eternal of the Scriptures, the eternal standing. It's settled forever in heaven. The incorruptible seed that liveth and abideth forever. Matthew chapter 24, he makes the proclamation in verse number 35. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. The words are particular to him. You know, Dr. Ruckman always used to say, uh, just spell my name right. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to quote me, just quote me right. At least do that justice. You don't have to like what I say, but if you quote me, just at least quote me right and get my name right. That'd be nice. I don't mind taking credit for what I say, as long as it's what I said. You realize that every, every time someone decides they want to go ahead and make another of the, I believe we're, we've gone and exceeded a thousand translations in English of the Bible now. Every one that goes ahead and changes, you know what they've done? They've misquoted. And they haven't misquoted just slightly. They've misquoted the God of the universe. Now, this gets you right back down to faith. Can God preserve His own words? If He can, where are they? And if He can't, why would you follow Him? If God can't preserve His own words, you know what I wonder? Is he any different than the statues of gold and of silver and of wood that he talks about there in the Old Testament? How they'd speak not, they can't do anything, and you've got to do everything for them? Wouldn't that be yours? That wouldn't, that'd be the same as your God, wouldn't it? If he can't preserve it and he can't keep it, how's he going to keep you? He can't keep a book together? But he's going to keep your eternal soul from a lake of fire? If God can't preserve it, then... His promises are really no good. Because His promise is that it won't pass away. His promise is that He's the one who will preserve it from this generation forever, meaning the generations would have it. Meaning you should be able to go ahead and get a copy of the Scriptures right now. And if you cannot attain to that, you know what you have? Nothing. Say, boy, that, that's a pretty hard line. Well, salvation is a very hard line, isn't it? God, God, God does not sit there and go, I, wanna, I really need them to feel like I'm, I'm okay. 
I'm going to be honest, your feelings on a lot of things get in the way. Your heart is deceitful. It likes to sway you with the thoughts of the heart and pull you around. When the reality of what God says is what matters. So what does God say? God says that a copy is perfectly fine. He inspires copies. He goes ahead and lets you know, I inspire translations. Then he goes, okay, and I promise to preserve it forever. Down to the words. So, where are they? Well, the idea of the originals is, that's foolish. They don't exist. You don't even have an original of Jeremiah. We don't have it. So it can't possibly be talking about the originals as the place where he's going to preserve this forever. Doesn't work that way. So then you go, well, you know, uh, you got to go ahead and get the copies of the Hebrew and the Greek. Which ones? I believe you can get the right ones. But you know what the problem is? The problem is that is held for the elite. Remind you of a Catholic church? You can have the scriptures by us letting you know what the scriptures tell you. So we'll keep it in Latin and we'll make it so that you can't have it. You need to be a scholar to go ahead and know what God says. Well, that doesn't work either. You know, the consistency of what God does is so simple. The Old Testament oracles were written to the Jews. We knew that. So he writes it in Hebrew and hands it to the Jews. The New Testament, when you get there, the gospel is about to go out to the entirety of the world. And the world of its day spoke Koine Greek. That's what they spoke. That was their language. For the vast majority of the world, that was the idea. And so God writes the New Testament in Greek so that the gospel can go out freely into a world. He didn't write it back in Hebrew again. You realize Greek is a language that is gone? It's dead. Hebrew is still alive. Why wouldn't he have just written the whole thing in Hebrew? Well, because then the world wouldn't have gotten it. The world wouldn't have gotten the message that he wanted them to get, that Jesus Christ can save to the uttermost. They, they wouldn't have gotten the message that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So he gets it to the world. Say, this sounds more like common sense. I apologize to use that sometimes since we've lost that. I'm sorry, common sense is still allowed to be used. Lost art form of late. So you've got the Old Testament. Hebrew written to the Jews. You get the New Testament. It's written in Koine Greek. And now here you are. And I don't really think it's questionable that God would put a Bible in English. Now, for one, when he did it in 1611, finished this one, you say, what was going on? Well, you have the, you have the British kingdom, their empire. That's wrapped around the world. You know what the influence of that was, by the way? That today, right now, 67 countries and 27 non-sovereign entities have English as their language. 
Over one and a half billion people on this planet speak English. One and a half billion. China is second, and Hindi, Chinese is second, Hindi is third. Say, so why is that? Only because their populations of their countries are so huge. They cross a billion by themselves. By the way, Spanish is down to four, just so you know, in case you were curious. Why do I have to hit one? I don't know. Should never have to hit one. Anyways, um, that's terrible. It's the truth. I shouldn't have to hit one. Why? English. We went to India. I've said this before. You go to India, 30 years old and under, easily. In the city, everybody spoke English. I could have a conversation with them. Those that have gone, they know. You could have a conversation and, and a pretty good conversation. It wasn't hard for them to understand me. It wasn't hard for me to understand them. You have a conversation in English. So what was God doing? Setting it up for a world to have the Bible. So then what did he do? He put it in a pure, in a pure version of English. Now, I could get into all the semantics with it, but I won't. Real simple-like, though. Uh, this form of English is way better than yours. <laughs> Conversational American English is terrible. <laughs> all right? So he didn't write it for your common vernacular. And they go, well, we'll just update the language. But they never just update the language, for the record. If you don't believe me, you go ahead. Just go out, go out in the entryway. There's a yellow... Uh, a yellow card at the top. You can grab that little pamphlet right there. And you say, what is it? It's a Bible version comparison sheet. That's all it is. It's got six or seven versions in there that you can line up. And it goes through the entirety of the New Testament and what they change. By the way, even in a New King James Bible, they remove the deity of Jesus Christ. They remove the blood of Jesus Christ. They stop talking about hell and start talking about Hades. They remove damnation and just make it condemned uh they anyways say it's not the same the english of a king james Bible. the reason why it's better is very simply all the words that people don't like it, it, it's too complicated it's too complicated the these and the thous and the yees and the use those are far too complicated for me to learn which is why when you took a second language you learned Technically, these and thous and yees and yous. It's singular and plurals. That's all it is. By the way, it enlightens you to the scriptures if you know the these and the thous versus the yous and the yees. It just does. The easiest example, and I've given it plenty of times before, is uh, John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. He's speaking individually to Nicodemus, but he's not. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye, plural. Must be born again. Why? Because Nicodemus isn't the only one he's talking to. He's talking to all of us. You must be born again. You find it very easily and very quickly. You say, well, we need to modernize it. Why? Why? Is it that hard for you to understand? I'm trying. I'm trying to be nice. I'm trying to be nice. 
I don't know how I'm trying, and I don't even know why I'm trying half the time. I'm not very good at it. Um, it's not hard to read a King James Bible. It takes a little work. It takes a little practice. You read it, you read it, and you go, oh, i got to think. Sorry. Common sense and thinking this morning can be rough. But the truth is, God wants you to have the Scriptures. You know what He wants to give you? He wants to give you a sure foundation to stand upon. Who would want you to doubt it? The author of confusion would want you to doubt it. God's not the author of confusion. He doesn't want you to be confused. He doesn't want you to doubt. He doesn't want you to fear. He didn't give you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. He wants you to know. He wants you to understand it. He wants you to have it. So you know what he did? He put a wonderful little bow on it in 1611 and put a King James Bible together for you and he handed it to you in the English language and you have it. Well, you know, there's revisions. You go ahead and talk to me about the revisions afterwards. The words are all there. Well, there were spelling errors. I, I didn't say spelling. I said the words. The words are there. Well, they had, uh, you know, they had, they had line errors. Really? Just go ahead and try and publish anything, all right? Doing the, doing the hope books and I'm dying. So what's, what's the problem? The problem is you don't have any faith that God can do what He said. Say, well, I don't think it's a King James Bible. I think it's an NIV. Okay. Take your NIV and hold it. I'm fine. You realize you you will not bother me if you go ahead and grab a different version of the Bible than a King James Bible and you say, this is for sure the perfect Word of God. But people don't do that. They decide what they like in this one and what they like in that one and what they like in this one and what they like in that one. And it sounds better over here and I like what it says there. But that verse is missing over here and I don't like it, so I'll just skip it. There it is. You say, what is that? That's no certainty. You're the one who decides what God said. The other argument you gain into, and I'm going to wrap this up, I promise. The other argument you get into is this. Well, you King James Bible only people. You're always causing divisions because you can't just get along with everybody else. I have a question. If I walked in here with 20 Bibles, 20 versions of the Bible, just went ahead and handed them out, and we read the same passage. Does that sound like wonderful unity? Or does that sound like divisiveness? But then you walk in and you use one. And you all believe that it's true. And you know that you've got it. And there's no reason to change it. And what it says is the final authority in everything that you're going to do. And you base everything that you believe on what it says. And how it operates. And you learn about the God that wrote it. And you choose... Does that sound like unity? It certainly doesn't sound like division to me. Say, so who's really being divisive? 
The one who doesn't want to submit that God is perfect and he's got a perfect book and he's handed it to you in a perfect book of a King James Bible. So what's the question? The question is, can God do what he said he'd do? So what do you believe? I believe by faith because without faith it is impossible to please him. So you got to give me perfect non-refutable evidence. I need everything. Okay, go ahead and read this one and find a problem with it. I can go ahead and walk back to my office. We can grab a bunch of the other ones. I can go ahead and show you where they all made a, prom- made a problem. There are versions of the Bible that people hold on to that have two different people killing Goliath. They can't figure out how old Saul was supposed to be when he began to reign. Versions of the Bible, they can't figure out who Lucifer is. There's versions of the Bible that don't know how to bring up hell and talk about it. Versions of the Bible that remove the blood from your redemption. Versions of the Bible that remove the deity of Jesus Christ in repeated fashion. There are other versions of the Bible that remove salvation. Say where? Acts chapter 8. And the argument keeps coming. Well, you know, how do you know yours is perfect? By faith. I've got evidence, but there's faith. You know what it takes to believe that God could preserve His Word? Faith. You know what it took for you to trust Jesus Christ? Say, but this seems like such a leap. No, it doesn't. How could it be such a leap? God wouldn't have you leap that far. That's why I made sure you knew. Inspiration and preservation. And he says, can you trust that I can do it? And if he can do it, where is it? My answer is a King James Bible. Say, what's, I, what if I think it's something else? Whatever it is, you better hold on to it. Whatever it is, you better hold on to it because I guarantee you God preserved it. So how can you guarantee that? Because He told me so. Twice. And then some. Let's go ahead and stand this morning. I know this isn't really an altar call message right here. Uh, Maybe you just need to come and go, thank you, Lord, for a Bible. How lost and how just blown about and carried about with every wind of doctrine we would have without a Bible. The truth is that the Bible is, is absolutely true. He says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And the truth of the word of God is right there. And if you have never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, he wants to save you today. There's no question about that either. He is not... He is not unrighteous. He's a reasonable God. His answer is, come, let us reason together, say it the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they should be white as snow. He wants to wash and make you white as snow. And the Word of God will tell you exactly how to do it. God's promise is He can preserve His Word, and if you trust Him for all of eternity, He'll, He'll preserve you for all of eternity. He'll seal you onto the day of redemption, and He'll go ahead and give you His Spirit and go ahead and make it so you can have eternal life and it'll never be taken away. 
If you're in here today without Jesus Christ, we'd ask you to come. We'll open up a Bible, show you out of the Word of God, that precious book, how you can know that your sins are forgiven. If you're saved in here, praise God, we've got a Bible. We can be sure of the foundation that our faith is built upon, Jesus Christ and the Word that He has given us. And it makes that ground so solid so that you don't have to be soon shaken and pushed around and blown around. It's so wonderful. So wonderful. Father, I do thank you for the day. We thank you, Lord, for a precious book and the pages of a wonderful Bible that we can turn and we can read and we can study and we can, Father, grow. Lord, I do pray that you would just bless the day. I don't know if anybody here is lost. I, I, don't, I don't believe so, but Father, if there is, I pray they'd have the courage to come and trust Jesus Christ today. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.